Ephesians uh, 4, 5, sorry, Ephesians 5 says um, that we ought to admonish one another, encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And uh, just as a one-sentence testimony, you have encouraged my heart this morning with your singing. And, and the, I was very encouraged by the Lord through you. Um, what a blessing to be part of a singing congregation it really is. As human beings, <clears throat> we love stories. Uh, this morning we heard stories of babies born and of lives changed in Chile and from the Sharps. Um, I love hearing the story of people, how they came to be a Christian, the circumstances that the Lord used to do that. I even quite honestly love the origin stories of like villains and heroes in movies. I always find them fascinating. Um, stories, uh, when Susan and I get together actually with a, new, a couple for the first time, usually one of the questions that she'll ask is, how did you meet? Uh, and then we get to hear the story uh, of that. Stories build relationships. I mean, if you think about it, piece by piece, we learn one another's stories as we go along in relationships. And that is part of what the Lord uses to bind our hearts together. Um, stories appeal to us because they give us understanding. They give us a sense of where we came from. They give us a sense of why we're here. And that's actually what we're doing as we come to Genesis 2 today. Only we're not looking at any one individual's story. We're looking at our collective origin story, as it were. At least the good part of it. And um, <clears throat> our story actually in total finds its beginning and finds its end in the Bible, a story that begins with two people in a garden, ends with a great multitude that no one can number in a city. And in Genesis 2, verses, 20, verses 4 to 25, what we have is a close-up view of the beginning of mankind. In Genesis 1, I'm sure you noticed last week, creation clips along at a pretty fast pace. Uh, I mean, you go in 31 verses from uh, there's only God to there's everything. Um, okay. And at the end of verse 30 in chapter 1, there are these four words, and it was so at the end of, ver at the end of day 6. And basically, chapter 2, verses 24 to tw uh, 4 to 25 explain what the Bible meant by, and it was so, on day six. What does that mean that God created man, male and female, He created them? In His image, He created them. And uh, we get that here. So we zoom in on one day in one place. We're no longer considering the whole universe. We're considering a tract of land called Eden, which is geographically very uh, impossible to locate these days. Uh, but somewhere in ancient Mesopotamia, here, here is Eden and uh, the rivers. If you're looking for the secrets of the rivers, you've come to the wrong place. Uh, because I don't think the point of Genesis 2, 4 to 25 is to tell us the secrets about where the rivers are. I think it has something far more important to tell us. So we'll focus on the more important, and we can talk about the rivers another time and another place. But to some, this is very confusing because in Genesis 1, verses 10 to 12... The Bible tells us that vegetation is springing up and, and seeds are produced and plant and fruit trees are happening and, 
And then you get to chapter 2, verse 5, and the beginning of it says, when, there was, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. Well, what's going on there? Well, in short, I will tell you the position that I, that I believe actually explains this the best, which is that there were certain types of plants that were not yet flourishing. Why? Because the Bible tells us, the rest of verse 5, because there had been no rain... And because there was no man to work the ground, this is what's going to come, uh, uh, is that. And so so that when you read it all together, when when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, why? For the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. All right? That's all I'll say on that because... Uh, and I'm not going to answer the question of when do I think it rained the first time in the Bible. This is something that you know college students sit around at 1.30 in the morning trying to figure out. <clears throat> so we'll save the discussion for 1.30 in the morning, all right? Uh, but for now, we'll just stick with what's here in front of us. I, do, I did send out an article to you, if you remember, via email this week uh, about understanding Genesis 2.5. I think Dr. Kruger is pretty uh, helpful there. If you're not a member and you'd like me to send you that, please let me know. Um, But here we are on day six, zoomed into Eden. And God zooms in on the creation of human beings because human beings are going to become the, the focal point of His work from here on out. And it all begins here. The big idea being that God created human beings to live in His world under His authority. God created human beings to live in His world under His authority. That's God's purpose. God did not simply create us and leave us be to figure things out. He created us for His world. He created us for His purposes. And actually, as the Bible develops, we learn that that's what it means to actually live in God's kingdom, to be God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what Israel was supposed to be. That's what present day, that's what... That's where the kingdom is located, is in the church, God's people in God's place, the church under His rule, through His Word, and one day we will live in an eternal kingdom, God's people in God's place, under God's rule. But this is where it all starts out, in Eden, what is essentially an ideal kingdom. An ideal kingdom we are meant to see and to understand and believe, even though we lost it. And this is not the world. The world that we're about to describe is not the world that we live in exactly. But we are meant to understand it. That's why it's in the Bible. And so what I want us to do is to think about how God created us to live in His world under His authority. And I want us to do that by thinking about what God has given as He creates us in this text. The first is that God gives life. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Uh, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, Breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. God forms the man. This word 
forming from the dust of the ground is like a master craftsman at work. His skill, his imagination, his wisdom, his power is all fully on display. And actually later on in the Bible, this is the word that's used for a potter who takes a lump of clay and forms it so that it becomes something beautiful, so that it becomes something useful. That's what God is doing here in the beginning. And actually, he didn't just do it in the beginning. He's still doing it today. We, can, we saw the evidence of it during the Sunday school hour at Florese. He's still, Psalm 139, 13, forming people in their, in their mother's womb. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah says, before I, God speaking to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God forms man and then he breathes life into him. The Bible says that in him is life. I mean, there is no life apart from God. So that anything that has life, it's a derived existence from God. There is no self-existent human being. There is only those human beings who have been formed and breathed life into by God Himself. Now, God had given life to the animals, but this is different. This is, He breathes the breath of life into them. Derek Kidner says of this moment that breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. The creation of man is both powerful and it is personal. And that comes through most clearly because, I don't know if you noticed, but the way that Moses is now referring to God has changed. All throughout Genesis 1, all you read is God, which is the Hebrew word Elohim. Once you hit chapter 2, verse 4, something has changed. No longer is it just the name God. It's not just Elohim. It's the Lord God. And Lord is in all capital letters, which is a reference to God's covenant name, Yahweh. So it's Yahweh Elohim. This is who this God is. He's not just the powerful God who says, let there be light, and there is light. He is the personal God who has a personal connection to His people. He is a God who's going to make covenant with His people. So we have here both the the personal nature of God's creation and the powerful nature of God's creation. As we think about that, as you think about the fact that God gives life, that means that every single, we said this last week, every single human life, Life matters. You can never really say that enough, particularly in our culture. There there is, no matter what horrible circumstances may have occurred which brought about the conception of a human being, God knit that little baby together in the mother's womb. There are those who fill middle schools and high schools today and beyond who believed that somehow they were just a cosmic accident and it's all worthless and maybe my life should just end. Genesis 2 teaches otherwise. Genesis 2 teaches the very powerful and personal creation of every single human being. And because God has formed humanity, 
he actually knows what's best for humanity. He understands the design better than anyone else. So when it comes to moral positions, when it comes to ethical decisions, when it comes to political stances, these must begin with an understanding of what God says. This is why the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible are so incredibly important, because God who has made us has also spoken to us about what life is to be. It would be foolish, which is what the proverb says, it would be foolish of us to not listen to Him and submit to Him. Those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are Christians, are actually God's twice over. We're not just, we don't just belong to Him by creation, as all creation belongs to Him, right? Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But those who are Christians belong to Him twice over. We were, have give, been given physical life, uh, but He has also given us spiritual life. He has taken the dustiness of our sinful grave. The Bible says we were dead in our sin and transgressions. He has taken us from that dusty place and He has breathed into us new life by His Spirit. So that Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 6 that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Why should we glorify God with our body? Because God has made it, and it belongs to God. And if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you are God's twice over by creation and by redemption. That's why it's so critical that we as believers in Jesus not only read and study the Bible, but that we obey the Bible, that we not simply be hearers of the Word and, and, and shouting our agreements with the Word, but actually displaying our agreement with the Word in the way that we live our lives. God is the giver of life. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nowhere else to go. There is no other place to find spiritual life. It lies only in Jesus. At the very least, we must be intellectually honest enough to say it can't lie both in Jesus and in those things outside Jesus, because the Bible won't allow that. The Bible is not syncretistic in the way that it views the religions of the world. God has said He is God, He is God, the God who reveals Himself in the Bible, and He will share His glory with no other. God is the giver of life. The second thing that God gives is location. It's a wonderful location, isn't it? The Lord God, verse 8, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we have this paragraph about the rivers and where they flow and all of these things. The picture here is of a place that is both bountiful and beautiful. There is no shortage of anything that man needs. There is no shortage of food. There is no shortage of things that will wow them. I mean, 
The food is pleasant to the sight and good for eating. This is not McDonald's. I mean, this is not. You, you don't go in there and think, Ugh, I guess I need to eat. You don't do that here. Everything is great. And it's sparkling with beauty, gold and delium and onyx. It's bountiful and it's beautiful. The rippling sounds of the rivers teeming with life and vitality can be heard everywhere. It's a perfect place. And in the middle of these, this garden are two trees. trees. The tree of the knowledge of, the, of good and evil, the one that will be at the center of man's downfall, and the tree of life which is at the center of salvation's hope. We'll come back to those. But essentially, God gives a perfect location. Now, after the fall, Adam and Eve are removed, and essentially, the longing of humanity and the story of the Bible is, how do we get back in there? That's the whole story. The prophets long for it, so that in Isaiah 51, Isaiah preaches, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her deserts like the garden of the Lord. He gives this picture of redemption as a return to Eden, a return to perfection. And then in the, at the end of the Bible, this perfect bejeweled city is described in Revelation 21, a new home for a new humanity. And then in Revelation 22, there's a, a river flowing again. And there's a tree of life that is accessible once again. And then Revelation 22, too, says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The whole arc of the Bible story goes from this garden to that city. How do we get back in to the bounty and the beauty of God? By the way, if you have ever thought, well, if my circumstances were better, I wouldn't have sinned. You ever thought that? You ever thought, you know, if the things at work, if I just hadn't been really pressured at work in a long, long hours and... If, if I just hadn't done that, I wouldn't have blown up at the wife. If, you know, if you just thought, if I hadn't done that, I, if this wasn't the circumstance, I wouldn't have done that. Or if you do like couples who come to me for biblical counseling, if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this. Or if she hadn't have done that, I would have done that. Can I just tell you something? Adam and Eve are in the perfect location. And they rebel against God. There is nothing about your circumstances that, if they change, will keep you from rebelling against God. You may find a different way to do it, but the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The third thing that God gives is labor. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God has not created this place of perfection for a passive existence. For man and woman to only be a recipient of the bounty and the beauty, but to actually be part of it. 
Remember what we are to do as those who have been made in the image of God. We are to be like God and we are to represent God. And this is part of the reason why God says, work the ground and keep it, because this is precisely what God does. He does work and He keeps things. He guards things. And so He says, if you are made in my image, you should work. The spheres of that work will vary tremendously, but you must contribute to the well-being and the upkeep and the furtherance and the, and the flourishing of this creation that I have given, of this environment that I have put you in. So God sets the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. So work it here is a common word for just tilling the ground, you know, general labor, but do you know what else it is? It's also the word for serving another person in the Old Testament. It's also a word for worship in the Old Testament, in, especially in uh, Exodus 3 when God is about to send Moses in to bring the people out of Egypt. He says to Moses, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve, same word, God on this mountain. Apparently, work is not just about work here. Work is about God and other people. Work is not primarily about Adam's gain here. Work is about God and others. So, while this is a common word for work, it's not just work. While it will provide cultivated crops for Adam, it's not just for Adam. I mean, think about the different spheres that you're in, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or whether you go to, you're an engineer or you're a, a, a driver of some sort or whether you are a teacher or whether you are uh, let's, a school principal. I'm just going to go around and call people out. Whether you work in a restaurant, uh, whether you, uh, I don't know what some of you people do. Whether you work in IT, I'm getting there, but I'm just not all the way there. Uh, whether you're a nurse, right? Whether you manage people, whether you are managed by other people. We do our best at the work that God has given us when we aim it at those two ends primarily, the glory of God and the good of other people. The glory of God and the good of other people. Work is not just a, some necessary evil that God has given for us to be able to put food on the table. Work is an opportunity to bear the image of God faithfully, honoring Him. This is why Colossians 3 would tell slaves, work as unto the Lord and not as unto man. And when we work, we work for the glory of God and we work for the good of other people. So we work so that the clients and customers that we serve benefit, the students we teach benefit, the co-workers we work alongside benefit, the family that we're providing for benefits, and we trust the Lord for all of that increase. The reason why our shoulders slump and our heads go down at the idea of work is not because God created it evil. It's because 
sin makes it so difficult. As those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what we must do is recapture a sense of what it means to actually work, whatever sphere that is in. Being lazy does not glorify God. Doing as little as possible to get as paid as much as possible does not glorify God. So whatever you do, wherever it is you're going to wake up tomorrow and go to work, do it with all your might for the glory of God and for the good of other people. And he says, keep it which is a guarding word. It's a protecting word. He's to protect the garden. He's to keep it functioning as it should. Now, what's interesting as you think about it is that right then when God commands that, there is no physical threat on the garden. All of creation is living at peace. Why, Why God, would you say, Adam, keep it? Because there may not be a physical threat to the garden, but there certainly is a spiritual threat. And that's what we run into in the next chapter. And Adam does not keep it. He loses it. And so because Adam will not keep it, Adam will be removed along with Eve, and angels with flaming swords will keep it. So that the serpent and all those who have listened to the serpent may not enter. Isn't that a helpful word for us? Protect even your work. Protect your work from the decay of sin. Don't think that what you do when you're here amongst the body is the spiritual part of life, and when you go to work, well, that's the secular part of life. When we begin to divide those things, we fall right into the enemy's hands. We fall right into awful thinking. We fall right into a place where we have lost God's vision for life, which is that whether you eat or sleep or drink or whatever you do, whether you're a lawyer or an engineer or a nurse or an IT manager or you work at Wheeler Ministries or whether you Uh, whether you're retired and you're working a lot more at home and you're giving yourself to your kids and your grandkids, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you work in retail, whether you work uh, 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 feeding other people, that's the business that you're part of, whatever it is that you do, do it all for the glory of God. For many of us, this is how we need to begin praying at the beginning of the day praying, Lord, help me to glorify you and serve others today at work. And then at the end of the day, that's actually how we need to evaluate the day. Lord, help me to see how did I glorify you? How did I not? Help me to repent. I want to change. I want to grow. Whether you're a student with homework, whatever it is that God has given you to do at this place in your life, do it for the glory of God. Labor. Fourth, God gives limits. Uh, Verse 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now when people ask questions about this, their, their first instinct may be, well, why would God put any limit on anything? What we miss is the first part of that verse, which is here is a ginormous garden with anything you could ever really want or need. You can eat of any of it. Do not eat this one. Let me tell you why God does this. Because man is not meant to be autonomous. We are not to be independent of God. We are meant to be, first of all, did you notice God has to actually speak? Adam is not pre-programmed to know what he should do and not do. Even in an unfallen state, we needed God's Word. We needed God to speak. We were a dependent creatures before we ever fell. How much more now do we, as fallen, sinful human beings need the words of God far more. But God speaks, and He draws a line. Why? Because the best possible thing for Adam is to live under the authority of God. There is no better place to be than under the authority of God. There is no better place to be than in obedience to God. There is no better thing than to know that God is the king of the universe. He is running everything. And my submission to him is my response to him. There is no better life. We convince ourselves that it's better if I'm the king. If my kingdom could be established. Whether in my home or in this situation or at work or wherever. But God has drawn these boundaries, lovingly done it, for His purposes, because we, we were made to bear the image of God, but we were not made to enjoy the prerogative of God. We were made to subdue the earth, but we were made to subdue it under submission to God. We were made to exercise dominion, but we exercise a derived dominion from God. Man is God's creation, living in God's place, under God's rule. And living under that authority is still what is best for mankind. So that when the problems of life arise, our responses, responses that would honor the Lord, must be rooted in the authority of God. That's why in our congregation we practice biblical counseling It's also why our goal is that every member would be trained in biblical counseling to some degree. That starts tomorrow night, and even if you haven't haven't signed up, you can just show up at 7 o'clock tomorrow night and get started. And if you're a member here, we'll pay half the cost of the class for you if it's your first time going through. Because we believe two things. One, God is absolutely authoritative about the human beings that He has created. God has not left us to figure out the human soul without Him. He has told us who we are. He has told us everything we need for life and for godliness. But also, you're already counseling. As a believer in Jesus or as not a believer in Jesus, you're counseling. Somebody has called you in the last two weeks and thought, said, what do you think about this? Your kids come to you. Your friends come to you. Your coworkers come to you. And they say, how should, I, how should I deal with this? 
let's go to coffee, starts a counseling session. And so if we are going to be faithful to the authority and the sufficiency of the Scriptures, because we're already counselors, then we need to be equipped to do that well. And that's why we host the biblical counseling training. That's why we pay for half of the biblical counseling training. That's why if someone goes all the way to certification, we pay for the last stage in full because we believe in it that much. We believe we ought to put our money where our mouth is, and our mouth is in the authority and sufficiency of the Bible, so our money goes to equipping people to live that way and to speak that way. So, God has set limits The last thing is that God has given a loving relationship. Isn't that interesting? God does not leave man alone. I'm going to read this part in full, uh, 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man." Then the man said, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The last is just a statement of still the innocence of the garden. But it begins by saying it is not good. What's not good? Well... Verse 18 says, I mean, the Lord says in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, it's, it's imperative that we understand what that means. It does not mean that what God is saying is that I really hate that Adam's lonely. Let me get him a friend. That's not what that means. What that means is, you know what the word alone means in the Hebrew language? It means alone. It just means it's just him. There's nobody else. Now, why would God say that's not good? Because do you remember God's design in chapter 1? God's design is our male and female. He will make them in his image, both. And so it is not good that it's only the man here. And so God will create and does create makes a helper who fits. A a helper fit is one who is compatible, who is like him. And part of the reason this parade of animals is here is so that we see that nowhere else is there a helper fit for Adam. We live in a really strange world where people talk about marrying their cats, all right? The Bible will have none of this. There is no sense in which an animal can take the place of a human being. There is no sense in which an animal can take the place of a human being. Okay? 
Pets are wonderful. Pets provide companionship. They do not replace human beings. Not in, not in a biblical worldview, they don't. So, the parade comes by, into verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, God blesses the man by putting him to sleep, creating one who is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And now, to be clear as we go through this, the New Testament is going to point back to this and say, this provides us with a picture of the orderliness of the home and the orderliness of the church. Paul is actually going to say in 1 Timothy 2 that it's because Adam was created first that men should be in authority and in leadership in the church. It is not because of some sense of superiority. It's because of God's designed orderliness. The same is true in the home. The, the, the husband's headship in the home and the male leadership in the church, to be clear, again, is not a product of the fall into sin. It is complicated by the fall into sin, but it is not a product of the fall because this is part of God's good creation. So, here we have, the, the, it's a wonderful picture. The man's asleep, the rib is taken, uh, a woman is made, and uh, people have spun many a yarn about the rib coming from the side. Who doesn't spin a yarn is the Bible itself. What we know is she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and the taking of the rib actually explains that. She is compatible with me. She is of the same stuff. We're the same kind of creation though different. And so here, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Here we have marriage introduced to society. One man, one woman, one lifetime. We as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ must be concerned with every part of that definition. That marriage is between one man and one woman, and it is between one man and one woman for one lifetime. Now, in more recent years, we have been very, very focused on the one man and one woman. But the problems in our society regarding marriage did not start in the summer of 2015 when the Supreme Court made a decision about same-sex marriage. The problem with our view of marriage began long before that. I mean, in reality, it's going to start in the next chapter. But in this particular society... People tend to see marriage as something that serves my purposes. And so long as it serves my purposes, I will keep it around. But the Bible doesn't talk about marriage that way. It doesn't talk about love that way. We can't go into all of that. But, but, but this picture here is, is actually... Moses has no clue what he's writing about here. He's writing, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And he has no clue the full bloom that this will take when Jesus comes. Because actually, the purposes of God in marriage are to image the relationship between Jesus and the church. That's God's purpose in marriage. That kind of love, that kind of permanence, 
And when our society started eroding that long before we started considering whether we're talking about one man and one woman or, or something else. Unless we think that we're in a special category, the things that are true of our society in general when it comes to statistics and these things are equally true within the church. Now, these are, these are weighty matters because many of you have walked those roads. I'm not here to talk about your road necessarily. I would be glad to. However, what I can tell you is, wherever it is that you are now, hearing what the Bible says now, if we were ignorant of it, ignorant of it then, or we were just in rebellion then, if we are going to be faithful now, one woman, one man, one lifetime. The beautiful thing is that marriage is not meant to be a Grin and Barrett institution. Just hang on for the kids' sake, and then we'll tolerate one another once they're gone. This is not what marriage is. This is not biblical, joyful marriage. This is not Christ and the church imaged in marriage. And as I said, we've gone wrong and probably need to put away the soapbox and get back to the text for just a little bit more. We could, and we have, we've done a lot of teaching on that, and we probably just need to come back around. I trust the elders will remind me of that when I make the schedule for 2019. But it all concludes, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. By the way, that's not a geographical leaving. That's not a pack your bags and leave. Not in that culture it wasn't. In that culture, the person who actually left home was typically the woman who went to live with her husband in his parents' home. So this is a different kind of leaving. This is a leaving of priority. Marriage establishes a new relationship, a new home, a new family, that one, that one that must be prioritized if it is to flourish. This is not, by the way, a mandate that every single person must be married. But every single person must recognize that if human society is meant to flourish as God intends for it to flourish, marriage must be right. And many, many people must marry and have children and fill the earth and subdue it and pass on the faith. It's not a mandate, but it's also not an excuse if you don't get married to not have meaningful, loving relationships because you're meant to have them in the church at the very least, the family of God. I would actually encourage you, just find a family and make yourself part of them. If you're a single person and you're a member of this church, just find a family and just start saying, hey, can we just hang out? Because you know what? Being within a family structure is a good thing. It's a good thing. This is the building block of society. But marriage is to be prioritized over relationships with parents. Isn't this where some young marriages get into trouble? Because the apron strings are tied very tightly? Doesn't that create circumstances that are difficult? And the marriage relationship must be prioritized over children. We live in a very child-centric society. So it seems to go against the grain, but it's actually true that the best thing for our children is 
parents who are doing what the Bible says when it comes to one another and they are prioritizing one another. The child, the last child, the youngest child who goes off to college and then the parents split up because they were just hanging on until the kids got out. You never hear that child say, whew, I'm glad they hang on, hung on until I was out. It's not good. God has given us life. God gave a location. God gave labor, gives labor. He gives limits. He gives loving relationship. It's quite a story, isn't it? Everything that human beings need for existence is right here. Humanity can flourish and fulfill God's purpose, eat of the tree of life, and live forever. But we learn it doesn't stay that way. We rebel against God. We trampled in Adam, we trampled the good gifts that God gave us as His creation. And the good God responds in two ways. One is with justice. He removes Adam and Eve from the garden, cursing them. Everything will get harder. We will get to that in a couple of weeks. And He's good when He does that because a good God cannot abide rebellion any more than a good judge can just let a guilty person off for no reason. Yet, God also expresses goodness in His mercy. He does not kill them as they deserve immediately. He does not end the story of humanity here. He has mercy. And actually, more than that, He would redeem us. He would turn the story around. You ever wonder why you just really like at the end of the book when it says, and they lived happily ever after? It's hard to read that phrase at the end of a book without smiling because you've come through all of these other things and they live happily ever after. Do you know why I think that we do that? Because we, we long for the good ending of the story. We want the good ending of the story. We like when everything turns out as it should. And God's written the best of all endings. In a city with a river and a flourishing tree and healing and renewed people living happily ever after. But apart from God, there is no happily ever after. There is no good ending to our stories. We're left outside the garden. We're left outside the gate of that city in the future. You see, Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden and turned it into a wasteland. And that is where we will be left apart from God's mercy and grace and love. But Jesus Christ entered into this wasteland to turn it back into a garden. He came, and at the climax of His story, the story of a sinless man who never rebelled against God, who is in the worst of circumstances and never sins, at the climax of His story, we find Him in a garden, not enjoying the blessing of God that Adam and Eve did, but anticipating the curse of God that He would take on our behalf, sweating 
drops of blood. The curse of God, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross so that we could be blessed with salvation, to be recreated by the God who created us, to live in His place under His authority right now in the church and one day in that perfect city, a better Eden where we will eat of the tree of life and forever be with our God. Don't you want to be in that city? Just even reading what it was like then should increase our longing for what it will be like in the day to come. And the only way there is through faith in the Lord Jesus. Let's take a moment to reflect on what we've studied, and then I will pray, and then we will set apart Kevin together as as an elder. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth about who we are, about our origins, about why You made us. We, in our sin, have forfeited so much And yet, in your grace and mercy, you sent Jesus Christ to die for us, to be raised, to justify us, that we might be forgiven and made right with you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as your people to live in the place you've given us in the church under your authority to honor You, to glorify You with the lives that You've given us in the location that You've placed us, with the work that You have given us, bound to obey the Scripture as that which would restrain us from the things that would destroy us. And in loving relationships, with marriage as the foundation and the church as a community where we love one another. Help us to not be satisfied with this world or even just in making this world better. Increase our hope and our longing for the day when Christ will return and all will be made right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.